This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. Quick note from uh, last week's episode, episode six, about J. Michelson's book. I, I pronounced the title in episode six as if it was a declarative statement. You know, God versus gay, the religious case for equality. But there is a question mark after the word gay. And I guess the question mark followed by the colon kind of confused me. So it's more like God versus gay? In uh, reading it without the question mark, it kind of gives the impression that God is against gay folk, but, but Jay and others have argued that uh, God is not, and a religious case can be made for LGBTQ equality. So I didn't want that impression to be left unchecked. And so, episode 7, Genesis chapters 20 through 23. If what I'm about to say by way of summarizing this week's portion sounds familiar, it's because it is. Avraham and his wife Sarah find themselves in Gerar, where Avraham urges his spouse to say that she is his sister. And so, here in chapter 20, plays out the age-old story of boy meets girl, boy tells girl to tell other boy that she is his sister, other boy takes girl, and God smites the other boy until the other boy returns the girl to the original boy, along with wagon loads of property. <sighs> chapter 21 recounts Sarah's pregnancy and the birth of Yitzchak, he laughs, and the subsequent tension between Sarah and Hagar over more laughter. Sarah wants Hagar and her son Ishmael out of the house and out of the will and befuddled as to what to do, God instructs Avraham to listen to Sarah, so Avraham sends Hagar away into the desert. Soon the food and water are finished, and Hagar, not wanting to see her son die from thirst, puts him under a bush and goes off to bemoan their fate. When God's messenger appears to apprise her that all will be well in the end, Ishmael will live and sire a great nation. Avraham, though, isn't done with Avimelech, and after a run-in over some wells, he and the king of Gerar cut a covenant, and Avraham's ownership of the well is acknowledged, and so it is known as Be'er Sheva, the well of the seven swearings, as Avraham had set aside seven lambs for the oath. Chapter 21 concludes with Avraham planting a tamarisk tree in Be'er Sheva, quote, calling out the name Adonai, God of the ages, and sojourning in the land of the Philistines, quote, for many days. This bit of calm and rest is well in order as chapter 22 quickly wreaks havoc on Avraham's domestic ideal. God tells Avraham to go to the land of Moriah and to offer up Yitzchak as a sacrifice, quote, upon one of the mountains that I will tell you of. Avraham does not seem to hesitate as he sets out in the next verse with donkey, some wood, two servants, and his own son in tow. After three days of walking, Avraham sees the place and leaving the lads and the donkey behind, hands the wood to Yitzchak as he takes the fire and knife in hand for the rest of the journey. At some point, Yitzchak says, here are the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the offering up? Avraham replies, God will see for himself to the lamb for the offering up, my son. The next verse reports that they arrive at the site. Avraham erects the slaughter site, arranges the wood, then, quote, bound Yitzchak his son and placed him on the slaughter site atop the wood. Verse 20 states, quote, and Avraham stretched out his hand. He took the knife to slay his son. And just as Avraham is about to slay his son, a voice calls out. Are you out of your falcon mind? Yitzchak is spared. A ram is sacrificed in place of the son, and God's messenger relays that because Avraham was a hardcore believer, quote, Indeed, 
I will bless you, bless you, I will make your seed many, yes, many, like the stars in the heavens and like the sand on the shore of the sea. Your seed shall inherit the gate of their enemies all the nations of the earth shall enjoy blessing through your seed, in consequence of your hearkening to my voice. Phew. <laughs> well, chapter 22 concludes the mini list of begats, introducing the descendants of Nahor, Abraham's brother, particularly Betuel and his daughter Rivka, which we'll factor in later. Chapter 23 begins with the abrupt death of Sarah in Arba town, which is now Hebron which puts Abraham into a bit of a bind. What to do with the body? Where should Sarah be buried? Abraham buys a cave from Ephron the Hittite, known as Machpelah, after some back and forth where Ephron insists on giving the land to Abraham for free, and Abraham insists on paying. And after paying, the text reiterates the terms of the deal, the price, the extent of the plot of land, and what was on it and what wasn't on it, as well as the witnesses to the deal. Thus, as chapter 23 concludes, quote, was established the field as well as the cave that is in it for Avraham as a burial holding from the sons of Chet. Into this burial cave, sons would bury their fathers and mothers, and to this day, Jews and Muslims regard the space as a religious site, the tomb of the patriarchs and the matriarchs in Hebron. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's selection. Let's get to it. <laughs> In this week's portion, we confront what for some is the most difficult portion of the Torah, the Akedah, the binding, and decide once and for all if Avraham deserves a spot in the pantheon of Jewish role models alongside Sandy Koufax, Leonard Nimoy, and Barbara Streisand. Akedah means binding, as I said, and it refers explicitly to the story of Avraham's binding of Yitzchak and placing him on an altar with the intention of sacrificing him, all at God's behest. You know, I'd learned this story numerous times over the course of my life, in grammar school and in high school, and, and with periodic allusions to it during my university years, and throughout all of those encounters with the Akedah, I was a child. That is, I was a child in relation to my parents. I had a particular perspective on this story, a Yitzchak-centered perspective. I mean, why wouldn't a child trust his parents? You know, so what if dad asked to come along on a short walkabout? And so what if he had all the fixings for a sacrifice? The wood, the fire gear, the knife. He'll probably get the animal for sacrificing at some point along the way. No, you know, there's a takeout. And okay, so what if dad announces that we've arrived and asks the witnesses, I mean, the servants to stay behind. And, and yes, as he sets out to build the altar and organize the wood for the fire, there's still no animal, but that's eh, not a big deal. And fine, 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 fine. So now dad's tying me up and hoisting me onto the wood and he's got this knife in his hand. And what, what, he's stopping? He's not going to kill me? Well, there's really only one thing I have to say at that moment as he's helping me down off the altar. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! But lately, well, for about the last ten years, as a parent, I've set aside childish things, well, most childish things, um, and, and now I, I can't help but read the story through the eyes and the hands of Avraham, and still conclude, you dick. As a child, I never looked to Avraham as any kind of moral guide or exemplar. Okay, so he was hospitable. A lot of people are hospitable. The folks in Gander, Newfoundland, took in thousands of stranded airline passengers when the American government shut down all air traffic on September 11, 2001. And in April of 2013, 
Residents of Boston set up a Google Docs spreadsheet with a list of places to stay for marathon runners stranded in the city after the Boston Marathon bombings. Within 24 hours of the attack, the list of homes open to total strangers spanned over 565 pages. The American South is known for its southern hospitality, deliverance notwithstanding. The Bedouin are renowned for their hospitality as well. Bedouins will host their enemies and feed them for days if necessary. A complete stranger could stay as long as three days without being asked of his whereabouts, yet all the while enjoying the clan's full protection. Hospitality is extensively ritualized. When guests arrive, they are welcomed and a rug is immediately spread out, and they will first be served sweet tea and small glasses. Once the guests are honored, respected, and nourished, the host will prepare fresh cardamom-spiced Arabic coffee. I've enjoyed similar hospitality in the homes of Palestinians alongside my grandfather, who served as the chief of police in various towns in the north of Israel. You know, if you do a Google search for, quote, famous for its hospitality, pretty much everyone and everywhere claims that mantle. So, okay, Avraham, big on hosting folks, big on circumcision, but also big on lying. And I was going to say throwing his wife under the bus, but I really hate that cliche. You know, it became the idiom of the failed 2008 McCain-Palin campaign, along with putting lipstick on a pig, which is not sexist, Governor Palin. And it also seems to be the slogan of the new GOP, the bus throwing, not, not the lipstick on the pig thing. Apparently, current New Yorker staff writer David Remick coined the term in a piece he wrote for the Washington Post in 1984. Quote, in the rock and roll business, you're either on the bus or under it. Playing feelings with Eddie and the condos in a buffet bar in Butte, Montana is under the bus. I'd like to throw this idiom under the whatever form of public transportation you choose and, and thus refer to sacrificing another person, often a close friend or ally who is not usually deserving of such treatment, out of malice or for personal gain in the following manner. Try this out. Carter Burking, or just Burking for short. The reference is a bit obscure, but, but bear with me. In Aliens... The 1986 sequel to Ridley Scott's sci-fi classic Alien, Ellen Ripley is convinced by Carter Burke to return to the moon where Ripley had first encountered the xenomorph to investigate the loss of contact with the colony of Hadley's Hope. Carter Burke, played by comedian Paul Reiser, is a junior executive with the Wayland yutani Corporation and an extra-large trough of sleaze. He schemes against the lives of the survivors from the Sulaco mission. Once his treachery is uncovered, the Marines want to kill him, but Ripley insists he go back to be exposed, and when the aliens cut the power, Burke escapes in the chaos and seals himself off from the pursuing Marines, sacrificing them out of malice, or for personal gain, unaware that he's actually sealed himself in with a xenomorph. <laughs> so, Avraham was, in reverse chronological order, big on hosting folks, removing foreskins, lying, and burking his wife on two occasions, and now he can add to the top of the list almost child-killing twice over. There, you know, there was that incident with Ishmael earlier, if you remember. You see how that rolls off the tongue? Burking. He burked his wife on two occasions. Anyway, so, you know, if, if that's a, a bit harsh of a pronouncement or a bit over the top, you know, you could say that Avraham was just really big on bad parenting. Because as a parent, I can't comprehend why he so quietly acquiesced to God's insane request when not one episode ago, Avraham haggled with God over how many righteous Sodomites he would have to find in order to save the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, or Sodom and Amorah. 
What sense do you make of Avraham willing to argue with God about total strangers, many of which were ultimately proven to be really unredeemable, but, well, you get the point. The evidence on this matter is really quite damning. And yet, if you've been keeping score so far, none of the figures I've discussed in the nearly two dozen chapters of the Tanakh that we've been have been exemplary at all, really, and perhaps that's the point. I, I mentioned this before in episode five. The Tanakh traffics in very human protagonists. One is more flawed than the other. But as I've also said before, that's okay. If I look to Superman as my role model, I could never measure up. If I look to the lying, circumcising, burking, bad parent, which is Avraham, I could strive to be more truthful about who my spouse is and try to murder my children less often, which would put me ahead in many key categories. I could also strive to be more hospitable, more welcoming, and more upright. So, is Avraham a role model? Is he an individual who serves as an exemplar for others? You know, in this age of irony and cynicism of TMZ and the relentless news cycle, could anyone withstand the scrutiny inherent to being a moral exemplar? In the current environment of venerate and eviscerate, would anyone want to? Perhaps the ironic and cynical hold folks up too high, expecting the inevitable fall, or hold the bar too low, and then let folks trip over it. Or perhaps they ponder how deep does the role modeling need to go? Should talented artists, let's say, also treat their pets well? Should our savvy political leaders also be faithful to their spouses? Do all skills and all attributes have to correlate positively? For many, the answer is yes on all counts, which leads inevitably to disappointment and a little bit of schadenfreude. The internet has also created an environment where we don't have to settle for just one person to embody admirable values. We can pick and choose from the millions of people and all their YouTube clips and discover aspects of all of them and their stories that can enlighten and engage us. And then we can tear them down. Jason Russell raised global consciousness a bit late about the crimes of Joseph Coney in 2012 and 10 days later was arrested after running into traffic in a state of undress, screaming incoherently. All it takes is one YouTube clip. And you know, had the Dodgers not beaten the Twins in the 1965 World Series, Sandy Koufax would have been resoundingly vilified for sitting out Game 1 because of Yom Kippur. Every other achievement, all those other World Series rings, Cy Young Awards, and the perfect game he pitched, they would have been overshadowed by the Yom Kippur fail. And Barbara Streisand, who won an Oscar, an Emmy, a Grammy, and a Tony Award, she also starred in Little Fockers and was nominated for four Razzies, the most recent being for her comic turn in The Guilt Trip. And Leonard Nimoy, he recorded Mr. Spock's music from outer space, where he sang Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Earth, and this gem from his second smash hit record, Two Sides of Leonard Nimoy. In the middle of the earth, in the land of Shire, there's a brave little hobbit whom we all admire. With his long wooden pipe, fuzzy woolly toes, he lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo, Baggins, he's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo, Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. Looking at Avraham's behavior up to now in its totality, I couldn't help but conclude that Avraham was at his best when it came to complete strangers, but at his worst when it came to his own family. 
So I, I kind of tweeted out a call for an, a neologism, a new word to name the person who is sweet to strangers but savage to his family. Uh, Adam Oded, who tweets at Menno, quipped, cousin? <laughs> As the great sage Tracy Jordan said, they took my mood ring, and I don't know how I feel about that. Even though, and I have mentioned this a lot since episode one, biblical figures are very flawed, very human characters, especially our three fathers and four mothers, when the story focuses solely on them. But, uh, you know, what I suppose and what I never realized was how flawed and how human these folks are and, and how messed up they are and how persistent this messed upness about family versus stranger is. It is as if biblical behaviors like DNA gets passed on to the children, the grandchildren, and the great-grandchildren. You can almost draw a line from Avraham to Reb Saunders and the Chosen. And it's a line I frankly wish could be broken. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Tanakhcast. That's T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or at thenextjew.com where you can leave a comment, a question, or a comment at the iTunes store. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 8 on Genesis chapters 24 through 27. Y'all come back now. Here.